Hey, this is Erin Lindstrom, and you're listening to Thank You For You. This is a show about celebrating and acknowledging our humanness as well as our beingness, the easy and the hard, the gifts and the (laughs) gifts we don't really like but choose to accept anyway. This is a show about and for people in pursuit of more peace, more joy, more money, more justice, and more of the awe that life has to give us. Thank you for being here, and thank you for you. Hey, 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 you are in for a treat (laughs) because this conversation that you're about to listen to with me and Mike Ganino is, I think, epic. His energy, like I'll just share with you what I told him when we got off. Mike is so talented. He helps people with public speaking. So it's no surprise that like he's a good public speaker. But there is something that happens because you can listen to his words and you you go on a journey with him through his stories. You are everywhere. He takes you. He is just a master at actually taking you on a journey. And then energetically, it's incredible to be with him in conversation because conversation takes skills. And Mike is like beyond most people. I feel like I'm a pretty good conversationalist and he is just like worlds beyond. And I think that's really part of his gift as a human. And we met at a um, a live event in Canada a couple years ago and immediately kind of loved each other. And I just think he is incredible. It is such a gift to be in his presence and not only in just what he's sharing, but just like feel his energy as you're listening to this conversation because it is so good. It is magnetic. And, oh, like, it's just such a gift. He, I'm going to stop talking and just let you listen to it. But so you have a bit more background about him. Mike is a storytelling and communication expert who hosts the Mike Drop Moment podcast, which I'm interjecting into this intro for a second. His podcast is so good. Go listen to it. He does it differently than most podcasts. And it's like, well, edited with music and different things. Like, he just blows it out of the water. Okay, back to the intro. Uh, Mike is an author, the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, and has been named a top 30 culture speaker by Global Guru. He teaches storytelling, presence, and public speaking to some of the biggest names and brands. In addition to his track record as an executive in the hotel, restaurant, retail, and tech industries, Mike's worked with organizations like the American Marketing Association and Uber. Without further ado, like I'm just going to roll right into this conversation. Meet my friend, Mike Ganino, and I hope you love this convo as much as I did. Yay! (laughs) We are here. We've traveled through time and space to get to right now. Mike, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you for having, you know, it's so funny to you say we traveled through time and space and it's, I always have this like idea that there are these like, you know, I always think of everything in like the stories we tell, the mm-hmm. oral stories that we share. And uh, I always think there's something about the people that you circle, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I just feel like, you know, you and I've done things together, but we still, we just find each other in all kinds of new ways yeah. all the time. And I just think we travel through time and space and we're just part of each other's stories in ways that we don't know. And so I'm happy to be here with you too. Thank you. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm very excited to ask you this first question. Usually I get a little nervous because I don't know how the person's going to take it. I have high hopes for you, sir. <laughs> it's so funny too, because I think people listen to these shows and they're like, he knew the question ahead of time. Right. I know nothing. You said, hey, want to chat? I was like, let's do it. So I'm, um, I'm as nervous as you might be. 
<laughs> it's an improvised podcast, but I love that you also have an improvising background. So like, we're good. And with your storytelling, like, this is just amazing. So I'm going to give you the first question and then we're just going to take this ride wherever it takes us. And the question is, who are you and how did you get here? <laughs> That's so fitting to like the, the way we open to talk about like we traveled space and time and our stories are circling each other and intertwining. And then you wake up and you're like, who are you? And how did you get, I definitely woke up some mornings and said that to the person next to me. Let's just, I shouldn't say that now. I'm a dad. I'm not allowed. To, am I allowed to say that? You're allowed to say, say whatever you want. You're a real dad. I love it. You're a cool a dad. Real dad. I'm a cool dad. I'm like Amy Poehler. I'm a cool dad. Yep. So who am I and how did I get here? I think I'm, when I was little, I grew up, I had teenage parents. My mom was 15 when she had me. And, you know, I think there's, there's statistics about everything because they're generally kind of true. And I think sometimes we, we live inside of those statistics. And so like the, the, the numbers and the facts that are aligned around what a kid born to a mom who was 15 are, uh, those are true, but then they also can be not true. I'm mm-hmm. a type one diabetic when I was nine years old and we were super poor and we didn't have all the money for all the fancy things. And, you know, it was like uh, the statistics around that were, were there as well. And then I was a gay kid who lived in a small town where people, the thing we did was football and wrestling mm-hmm. and, uh, and I was like the editor of the newspaper. And so I think at a really young age through all of that, I realized that the facts, the figures, the data, the statistics, the what's in front of you uh, was just that. It's just mm-hmm. what's in front of you. And that we kind of get to, to look at everything. We kind of get to look around almost like we're like the little chef or the little paint, painter of our lives. And we get to look around and say, okay, what's here? And what do I want to do with it? And what do I want to, what do I want to leverage here? And it's not easy. You know, I don't mean to dismiss like, oh, I had some stuff happen and it hurt. Totally does. But I've always been someone that believed that we, we're in charge of the pen. We're in charge of the pen that's writing the story or the finger that's typing it or whatever you want to, you want to do now. We're in charge of that. And if we're in charge of it, it means we can end a sentence. We can put an Oxford comma. We can move on to the next chapter. We can say this part it's boring. I'm going to move on. And I think, I don't know why through grace and grit and divine intervention, I realized that when I was really young, that like Mm. the statistics and the reports, I didn't have to believe them. Yeah. I didn't have to believe them that I had the pen and I could write something new. And so, you know, oddly, I, I, I think now at 40, I've like figured out how to think through all of that. I don't think at the time, I was probably kind of a precocious kid because I was always like entertaining and putting on shows, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I was precocious enough to be like, let me tell you, I'm the author of my own story and I've got the pen. When I was eight years old, I didn't (laughs) see it that way. I just kind of always felt that like, okay, well, this is here. What do we want to do with it? I always, long before I knew about the the rules that you and I've learned around the Mm -hmm. improvisational theater and sketch comedy world, long before I knew them, I think I realized, okay, this is here. And I could be mad about it, or I can like pick it up and take it with me, or I could throw it over the fence, or I could step on it, yell at it, kick it. I get to decide that. And um, it took me a really long time professionally to realize that that same thing applies to people at work. It applies to people on stage. It applies to us as business leaders. And so who I am is someone that deeply believes that we all are here to share our stories, mm-hmm. that we all are here to share them orally, that we are here to talk to each other, that something magical happens when we put words to our experiences. 
And that even if you've not been through much, even if you're like, I don't know, I kind of had it great. We lived in the suburbs and everything was perfect. I know there's a lot of people listening who are like, you do not know what the suburbs was like, Mr. Mike. Right? <laughs> I know that the suburbs aren't always great too. I'm just using the idyllic <laughs> life. That, that it's our job to look at our experiences and say, what? what did that mean? What was that about? So I'm a firm believer that we all have a story to tell. And um, how did I get here? I just kept finding really cool people to be my friends and really cool people to create new stories with. So that's literally how I got here on this mm-hmm. podcast, coming to your earlobes uh, via the assistance of Erin, the exquisite queen of all things in my life. But I also got here because I just, when I meet people, I think, what are you about? How do we circle each other? And so, I don't know. That's how I got here and how I got here. I love it. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, so, okay. So I have a couple questions for you, if that's okay. And we're just going to kind of like dive right in. One of the things that really just struck me about what you shared about like childhood and the things that are happening um, were two things. One is that the idea of like this being a statistic and kind of knowing like what you're in and that like, it doesn't necessarily like, it shouldn't pan out a certain way based on the facts. And I'm wondering like, as a kid, those are a lot of times held by the adults in the room that like, we don't even know as the child who's growing up in it. Um, did you have a sense of that as the child? Like, did you know more than you felt like you were supposed to know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like a very classic, like thing about like a little gay kid of like, Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be with the teachers. It was like, hello, Miss English teacher. I am here for our afternoon chat session. Like there's all these memes today going around about that. It's like, no, that's a hundred percent my shared experience with people. I, Uh, I was, you know, I was type one diabetic since I was little. So I always had an excuse. I mean, some of it was escapism because I didn't want to go into the lunchroom and be made fun of Mm -hmm. or all the horrible things that people call sensitive little boys. I didn't want to be punished with that. So I would find reasons to go to the nurse and be like, ah, my blood sugar feels off because I'm type one diabetic or, oh, I think I need to, I think I'm feeling this way or something. So I would always find reasons to go to like the school nurse. And it was like, oh, just me and the school nurse chatting about the other students. And I was like, yes, I know. Isn't Kathy just a total gas these days, Caroline? Like that was my thing. And so not only did I, I think I knew, I think I I knew one that that was a safer place to be for sure. But I also think I just wanted to know what the adults knew. I always wanted to be, I would get really mad at my mom when she would like go out with her girlfriends and be like, oh, this is the, how dare you leave me with this woman, Veronica, to babysit? What does she know? She's 17 years old. She knows nothing about the world. Like it's like fancy ladies like us do. And so I was really judgmental about not being included. I remember one time they went to see, there was some movie called like Salsa, or there was some kind of movie that came out that was like a salsa dancing, like sexy, like Mm rom-com type of thing. And they were all going and I thought, I should be, hello, who knows more about sexy salsa dancers than nine-year-old me? And, uh, and I just wanted to be where the adults were because I wanted to, I realized that so often they had a lived experience. Mm-hmm. And I realized that we're not really good at teaching kids that. I thought about a lot of that with my, my brand new, at the time of recording, she's like 23 days old fresh. daughter. Yep. Very fresh. I think about that all the time of like, I want to continually ask her, like, what did that mean to you? So you just experienced this thing. What did you take away from it? What was that like? Why did that matter to you? How are you storing this? How are you coding it? Because that's what we do. We code our stories or just code. It's like an engineer. It's just coding it in our brain as a specific kind of experience. And I think that we could do a much better job asking children that mm-hmm. as well of saying, how did you just code that? What was that about to you? What did that mean to you? What is your takeaway from that? Because 
that's what they're going to remember likely. And so as a kid, for some reason, I was always kind of storing my experiences. I would either use them to be like, I'm putting on a I'm putting on a play today, everybody. And it would be about like my little observations and thoughts on the world. Or it would be that I just felt cruelly left out by not being included with all the like 30 something year old ladies as they went out to watch sexy men dance, you know, dance at a club or something. I thought, oh, how dare you not include me in this? Because I wanted to understand those experiences and those stories. Yeah, that is fascinating and hysterical. Like... Also, I feel like me and you as kids had so much in common. And I've, oh my gosh. I've never really thought about it like that, but I'm, I was always with the teachers instead of the students. Camp counselors, I camp, you could find me with the counselors and not the kids. And I would just find my way into these situations where I was holding space and listening to them. And like, when I think about when did my coaching start, it started when I was babysitting and listening to all the moms because they would open up and tell me. And like, that was interesting to me. And so I think that like holding space, the who I am now is very much the same seven-year-old or 10-year-old that I was then. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to think of the, the, you know, it's like, I can visualize you doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting to say as that, as that conduit, as that Mm -hmm. conductor for that mom to share the, the kind of, I don't know, there's some kind of interesting place in the middle that you held for them of like, you're not an adult who's going to judge me for what I'm thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. And you're not a child who I have to protect from it. You're someone that I literally can share this with in a way that, because adults are just so nasty to each other, really right. bad at judging. I mean, I'm 23 days into having a baby and I'm already like, I don't need the DMs about all the things that I might screw up with her and advice yeah. about everything. I'm already getting it. And we're just so bad at that. that I And, and then we don't want to do that to our kids of unleashing it. So there's something about being a conduit for people to say, ah, I'm a safe place for this to go mm. uh, because I don't have to live in either of those binary worlds. Yeah. And I love that you're actually taking that and bringing it to your daughter or already thinking about how to do that as she grows up. And let, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Who knows? Call me, call me again in a month that I may be like stressed out, not sleeping, caffeinated and being like, here's an iPad, honey, watch <laughs> Sesame Street or something. Here's the beauty of this. And I've been in the parenting game for uh, seven years now. And you can do both. You can be the parent who's like, here's the iPad. And you can also be the parent who's like, hey, that happened before. Like, want to talk about it? And like, that's the the game because we're humans and we're beings. And I think there's room for both of that in parenting as well. I love it. Fluidity. Exactly. Fluidity in all of the things. So... Oh my gosh. So one of the other things you said was that as a kid, like you knew that you kind of like had this stage or this power of like, what do I want to do with this? And I was wondering, like, can you talk about that a little bit more? And like, what did that show up for you as a child? Cause I'm sure you weren't like, I'm the right, maybe you were, I'm the writer of my story, <laughs> but like, what did that feel like as a kid? And how is that, you know, who you are and how you are and really the gifts that you share with people now? I think that, you know, probably when I was in it as a kid, mm-hmm. I always was seeking out art as a survival mechanism. Okay. I was thinking about this the other day because there was a, maybe it was two months ago or three months ago, Reba McIntyre, the country music legend, mm-hmm. Reba McIntyre, was doing like a re-release or something of one of her albums called Rumor Has It. That was the album. And it's one of the albums where she started to go a little bit more she started to become the Reba that people remember from the nineties with the big hair. Mm-hmm. She was, she was like at the beginning of that move to where she became like a national treasure, a national known entity. And so rumor has it had the song like Kathy's clown. It had, um, 
a bunch of these other hits and there was this kind of B-side song on it. And this was in 1989, 1990 when my parents were getting divorced. And I felt like I didn't know how to talk to my mom. Uh, my dad and I had always had every issue that every little gay boy has with their dad before mm-hmm. they come out. Mm-hmm. So we had, I didn't care about how to talk to him. I wasn't interested, right. but my mom and I had had, especially because she had me when she was so young, we'd always had this really different bond. I mean, I was nine years old. My mom was 24. So it wasn't like my mom was, you know, a, a lot. We were listening to the same, like I listened to Madonna because that's what my mom listened to. Right. I didn't have to hide my Madonna obsession. Like so many of my 40 year old gay peers, my mom was listening to Madonna and it was like, well, I'm just doing what you're doing. I'm yeah. not, you know, <laughs> I'm not gay or anything. I'm just here in the car. We're, you know, dancing to express yourself or voguing with each other. And so all of a sudden when my parents got divorced, I just had this time where I didn't know how to talk to her anymore. I didn't know how to relate to her anymore. I, I think that there was probably some of the divorce stuff that, that was no longer being shared with me because, mm-hmm. you know, I was nine and probably shouldn't have been. And so I felt really lost, almost like I had lost a friend. She was still mm-hmm. doing all the motherly things that she needed to do beautifully. Yeah. But the side of her that was kind of like my friend, Mm-hmm. I had lost that a little bit. And as like a little sensitive boy, that relationship with my mom was like a very special and unique one. And it still is today. And so this album, this Reba McIntyre album, Rumor Has It was out. And I listened to, you know, all the hit songs or whatever. And then there was this B-side song. And it was about a little girl who was sitting in her room and she and her mom weren't talking to each other anymore. And she looks up at the moon And she says, are you the only one who um, knows how I feel? Are you the only one I can speak to? And I remember we lived in this little tiny apartment in San Diego County, California, like up in the mountains, not near the beach. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, further, further away from all the sexy parts of San Diego. And I remember listening to this tape. It was a cassette tape. Yeah. And I listened to that song over and over and over because it was really how I felt. Mm -hmm. And at the end, the song solves itself where they come together and they do that. And I remember finding so much hope in that art. Not only was it that the art was expressing how I felt, but I remember I didn't know how to say how I felt, you know, and thinking about, did I always know I was the author with my pen in my hand, writing my own story? (laughs) I didn't, but I I think that for some reason, I always leaned into music and, um, and TV. I didn't really know about theater. I was like too poor to know that theater existed. I didn't really know about any of these things. So I like leaned into TV and performance and art as a way to say, is that how I'm feeling? Or is that how I'm feeling? Is that what she just said? I felt a little prickle on my arm. So maybe that's how I'm feeling. Wait a second. Let me rewatch that. And this song, this Reba McIntyre song that was never a single and probably Reba doesn't even know the lyrics to today. I'll call her later and ask or something. (laughs) We'll have her on the next episode. Yes. Yes. Stay for the conclusion. Uh, This song helped me understand what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the way that the song ended, obviously they came back together. Everything was solved in three and a half minutes. It gave me hope that we'd be able to find each other again. And I think that in some way that was learning that I still had the pen and that I could come back in that case to my mom or that Mm -hmm. I could come back to what was going on. And I could decide that, oh, this was just a period of time where we were both going through stuff, but we dealt with it and we found each other. Or I could decide with my little pen, it was over and we hated each other forever. Right. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know why that song, yeah. and I don't know why Reba, but that was like the start of a very long obsession with Reba McIntyre that I had. 
I'm so glad Reba's part of your story. (laughs) She was part of my, when I first started as a keynote speaker, she was a huge part of every speech I gave. There's pictures of me on stage with a huge image of Reba. Don't sue me, Reba McIntyre estate. (laughs) A huge image of Reba in the background because I would talk about how my first job I got when I I was living with my grandparents, I got my first job because I wanted to go see Reba's big tour. It was right after she had had huge success with Fancy, that song. And I mean, let's talk about how we all feel like that woman in fancy sometimes too. So it's like the underdog story of a lifetime. But I wanted to go see so bad. And my grandma and my grandpa were like, well, you got to pay for it. I was like, okay, let me add up my allowance, $10 a week. And it'll take me seven years. And I was like, I can't (laughs) afford this tour because she drove out in like a taxi on stage. Like a taxi (laughs) delivered her on stage. Like here's Reba singing fancy delivered from a moving taxi at the MGM arena in Las Vegas. And so uh, that's how I had to get a job. And that job then taught me all of these things. And so I used that in my keynote for so long. I talked about Reba. So be a Reba. We close girl. Wow. I had no idea there was such a link <laughs> there, but like now that I know I'm going to see the world in a different way. <laughs> oh She's my a great God. teacher. I bet that it's funny that you mentioned the fancy song just in terms of like, you know, the, whatever planet we are and how we orbit around each other. It's like yesterday, my memory on Facebook was nine years ago. I moved to Savannah. I remember the night we moved there, we did karaoke and fancy was playing. And like, so it's just always so funny how things like connect back. Yeah. You're a little kid. You're in California. What do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) I think I had like a, I think I had like a weird, I don't think I knew a lot of what was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find these people and they're like, yes, when I was young, I knew I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And it's like, I didn't even know that that was an yeah. option. I thought my option was like garbage collector. That was what my dad's job was. He was like a garbage man. Mm-hmm. My mom was like a maid cleaning hotels. Uh, you know, my grandpa was in construction. I saw people working in town. I didn't really know that. I just thought people like worked in offices or they worked in shops or they picked up trash. That was what I thought the options were available. But so I don't know that I ever, when I was a little, said, this is the path for me yeah. outside of that. I just kind of leaned into what I was interested in. And so I was always putting on little productions. We would watch, my friends and I would watch like the newest episodes of Kids Incorporated mm-hmm. on Saturday mornings. And they'd be like, okay, let's sit down and we need to map out the script. And we need to figure out how are we going to do our version of it. And sometimes for nobody, we would just go to like, right. the, there was like a, a, like a creek behind our house. We had to like climb through a fence that like scratched. I mean, this is like the word we're getting tetanus shots yep. going through this fence. <laughs> we would climb down there. And we would like put, there was a big flat rock and we would perform our kids incorporated set to nobody mm-hmm. but ourselves. And so I knew that something there felt right to me yeah. uh, in high school. Later, I, <laughs> I wanted to be a lawyer. I went through all the stages. I was like, I'm going to yeah. be a doctor. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I could cut someone or I don't know if I want to <laughs> yeah. do that. And then uh, I wanted to be a lawyer because I was like, okay, well, Allie McBeal is amazing. And if she can like talk to babies and wear really cool outfits, then maybe I'll be a lawyer. I'm really good at arguing with people. Um, Probably thought I was smarter than people because I was like in this really small town. And I was like, I I am smarter than most of them. Um, And then I went to college and I was like, I'm smarter than nobody because (laughs) I used to be the the big fish in a little pond. And now I'm just some like twit who came from the boondocks in this nice school. Uh, and so then I learned I had other options. I went to college. Uh, I was studying broadcast journalism and I thought, Ooh, this is a way. So I think in high school, the like idea of like showing up and putting on a show and expressing myself became a thing. And I just kind of bopped around looking for ways to do that. And then I found improv, of course, mm-hmm. in my early twenties when I was in Chicago as an actor. And I thought, Oh, 
I'm going to be a millionaire doing improv. Then I realized, like, I'm going to get a free corona nightly for doing improv. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. But so fun. So fun. I remember the first time I was in a show they um at improv olympic in chicago and they came and uh, they said like okay you're you're gonna be in the show yada yada i went into the office the like you know the little admin office and i was like hi i'm here and i like walked in and i had my like driver's license and my social security card uh and i like was like here you go to the lady and she was like what's this for i was like well uh you know it's my id and my social security card (laughs) and she's like what are you telling me honey i was like well, um, I mean, I'm, you didn't hear, did you? I'm in this new show, uh, Sunday at 2 a.m. I'm in this great show. It's going to be a huge hit, which you're laughing because you know that Sunday 2 a.m. is like, sure, show up if you want. There's an yeah. hour left in the liquor license, so get here and do a show. And she was like, what do you want me to do with that? And I was like, well, I'm in the show, so we need to do paperwork and you know, figure out where I'm going to get my checks. So she's like, sweetie, you ain't getting paid for this. And I was just like, Oh, this whole process is about something else. So uh, thankfully improv led to other things, but right, right. I didn't get it at first. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. All oh, the expectations and reality and that moment of like, I'm here, I've arrived. And it's like, no, no, you haven't. And- right. Yeah. You're going to be doing improv for a bunch of drunk people next to Wrigley Field, where every time you ask for a suggestion, it's phallic. <laughs> Phallic or pineapple where I live. Like that's well, there's a, there's a there's a link. There's a link. I mean, yeah, they're not completely unrelated. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So I love hearing about like the journey from college and then to improv and like acting. And obviously now you're here and you have your own business. Can you talk to us a little bit more like about that journey and I don't know if there was anything. I mean, it sounds like as you leaped, there were things where you had expectations and then it was like, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) Were there things that you had to kind of like unlearn from, I feel like we go out into the world and we pump ourselves up to like, I can do this. I finally got the courage to go do it. And then we have like these unlearning moments. And so I'm just wondering, like, did anything like that come up for you? Yeah. I mean, it was all very logical and linear. You know, I went straight from like, no, I'm kidding. I went straight yeah. from college to improv to this and that. No, it was like, right. I, um, I, I was in Chicago. I had the opportunity to do improv because I dropped out of college to become an actor. Mm-hmm. And then that wasn't working for me. And I was kind of finding myself all over doing this and that, living with this family member, living with that one. And my grandma was like working at Pizza Hut in this small town back in the, the Friday Night Lights town. Yep. And um I was working at Pizza Hut with her, with my sister, with my, you know, everyone was there. My sister was in high school. And uh, she said to me one night, she's like, you're like angry all the time. And like, what the hell are you doing? You can't work at Pizza Hut in this little town the rest of your life. You're 20 years old. Go figure something. What do you want? And I was like, I don't know what I want. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, what would you like to do? And I was like, I just want to travel. And she said, then let's find some things to travel. And so I started um, applying for jobs on cruise ships. And flight attendant. And she said, my grandma said, like, hey, I always wanted to do that. Why not? I had kids early and I couldn't. So you go do it. And so I got a gig with a flight uh, with an airline. And that's what moved me to Chicago. I didn't where know then I was, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a flight attendant when I was 20 in uh, 2000. And that's how I started doing improv initially because I was, I was there. And as a flight attendant, you can work a pretty minimal amount to maintain your benefits. And you're like very... I mean, I made like $16,000 a year, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you could work a lot and make some more money. Right. 
So I thought, ooh, maybe this is when I can actually audition because I don't have normal jobs. So I could start going to auditions. I did a bunch of like uh, class action injury commercials where I was like, I was driving my car and this man slammed into me. And then my dad was mad and he was like, you got to get in money. And I didn't know who to call. So I did all those commercials and, um, and I, and I learned about like improv to help me better, to be a better, uh, to give a better audition. Mm-hmm. And then I really fell in love with the idea of like, oh, wait, as an improviser, I'm not being given a script. Mm-hmm. I'm writing the script. I'm co-creating the script. And I actually think that's one of the big things that people talk about improv. They say, oh, it'll teach you to be uh, more comfortable with yourself or this or that. What it really taught me was that like, I can have a really good idea and do something with it. And I could have a really crappy idea and do something with it. Mm-hmm. And so it taught me a lot about being a writer and it taught me a lot about getting clear on my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so I did that and nine uh, 11 happened. And so then I wasn't a flight attendant anymore because mm-hmm. everyone lost their job. So I was like, what am I going to do? I ended up getting a job at this sandwich place called a pot belly sandwich shop back when they had just seven locations. Yeah. And you know, I like wore, I had like two ties to wear my interview. One was my flight attendant tie, which had palm trees on it, pink <laughs> palm trees on it and a Mickey mouse tie that I had from college or high school <laughs> graduation. So I wore my Mickey mouse tie, uh, went to my little interview and it was that total look of like, I had my, my, uh, my khaki pants shirt and tie with no jacket. It was just the look like that mm-hmm. I had. And so I started working there and I ended up going in and leading a huge part of the training department, opening restaurants. I stayed there for seven years. So we had like over 200 locations, did really well there all along doing, doing shows and, and doing what I could, uh, writing with friends, uh, you know, different things like that. And I started to realize there that like people at work really need some of the stuff we do in mm-hmm. the theater world that I didn't even know there was such a thing as imply applied improv or applied theater even, Mm -hmm. but I just thought about like, wow, like I'm much more effective at presenting than this other person and they're not going to get promoted because of it. So like, let me help them learn what I know about this. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And I just started to think about like how we could use that. And so I started doing that and then went to the next place. The next place kept growing in my career, eventually was a partner in a spot that we sold. And um, after that moved to Los Angeles to kind of figure out at first I wanted to be like a talk show, like a TV travel show host Yeah, in 2014 now. And I thought like, do you just wander around sunset Boulevard until someone says, you, you look like a star. I don't know. I thought it was like 1920s, you know, like I was going to be like Elizabeth Taylor or something. Yeah. And it's like "Ah, me, but uh, that's how it works, obviously. So I started putting out like ideas and content around my thoughts on food and restaurants. And that started getting me consulting clients to help them with their food and restaurants. Mm. So that's like how I became a speaker. And the, the moment that you asked about of, you know, kind of uh, making choices, making decisions, how things occurred was I came to this place. And I think this is so important for so many of the people that I know are attracted to listening to this show Mm -hmm. and who are the kind of people is these are multi-passionate people. And it's also where people who can typically figure it out, we can typically do whatever, and that's beautiful. And it's really hard. It's really hard to be the person who says, I mean, I can do any of it. I can go be an accountant and I would be fine at that. I could offer a product where I teach people how to do Instagram uh, stories better. I could do something where I teach better presentation skills. 
And I found myself, and this isn't even that long ago, and I recognize looking back at my career over and over and over, I did the next thing on the rung. Mm -hmm. I took the next promotion. I did the next obvious thing. And so often I didn't stop and say, what do you want? Because I think much earlier, even though I ended up in a great place and and everything was lovely, I think I much earlier would have said, How can I explore sharing my ideas with the world? Mm -hmm. Maybe in my early 20s or or late 20s, early 30s, I would have said, Huh, I have some ideas that might help people show up and tell their story and present themselves to the world, express themselves. And I never asked myself, that because I just kept saying, well, this is in front of me and I can do it. Right. So I should do it. Right. And it's like that weird downside of being, you know, and I think so many of the people who are attracted to someone like you, Aaron, are people who, uh, who are probably pretty good at whatever gets put in front of them. They can figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it's hard sometimes when you have those opportunities to say, what do I actually want to be good yeah. at? And yeah. that goes right back to what you were saying about that conversation with your grandmother or your sister. The one who asked you, like, what do you want? And you're like, I don't know. And then it's like, what do you want to do? How would you like to spend your time? And I think that's such a good entry point into like, okay, if you can't answer, what do I want? Great. Let's start with like, what do you want to be doing? And then as you start to explore that, then you get to come back to that question of what do you really want? Does this feel like it? And like that check-in, that coming back to it is so important as we're expanding into the creation. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's like, yeah, you got to do this thing to get to that thing totally. Mm-hmm. But there does become a point where you can stop and ask yourself. And I mean, recently, because uh, I really think there's a whole thing, and I love this about you because you're similar. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for all of us, the people who have podcasts and who go on podcasts and who are the gurus of the world uh, to say like, this is absolute. And I've mm-hmm. known the absolute from on high, a divine being did it. But I mean, I will say that as recently as last year, I was really busy. Things were popping. I've yeah. been, I've made over a million dollars as a public speaker in the last few years. And I was so miserable, Aaron. Last year I did yeah. over 200,000 miles on airplanes. I yeah. was in new places all the time. There were some months, month that I did not sleep in my own bed. And I had to look and say, wait, did I, how did I say I wanted this? Right. And it's like, I didn't really, I just kept saying yes to stuff. And I had to really look at the beginning of this year, long before COVID, to say, what do I want to do instead? And I was like, well, what I really love to do is I love to help people tell their story. I love for people, when they open their mouth, the things that come out, they feel good about and they express themselves. I love that. And so do I have to be on an airplane traveling to offices in the middle of Des Moines, Iowa in winter to do that? (laughs) Or can I find other ways? And that's when I started my podcast, when I started to think of it. But even me sitting here, and I'm just saying this because sometimes people listen like, oh, those people have it figured out. Last year, I had this moment where I was like, I am miserable and I have everything that I thought I wanted and I have everything that other people would look at me and say, I wish I was speaking on those stages and getting invited to those places. And it, it wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't what I wanted. Yep. Oh, Oh, (laughs) it's such an important part of the journey. And like, it happens to all of us. I think no matter what we're doing, where you have those moments of like, wait a minute. So do you feel like, so if that was a year ago and you kind of had that like pause moment of like, all right, I did what I wanted and now I'm here and it's what it is. Um, And you made changes, right? Like you made decisions, you left things, you started things, like you created this new. So how are you feeling now in terms of like what you want and where you're going? I feel, I feel good. I feel like I'm doing the right thing now. I'm starting to build this. Um, I'm starting to build out this 
program, this like kind of longer extended uh, thing. Cause I also realized like the work I do, it's like, yeah, come to a webinar for 90 minutes or pay for my course. And it's only going to get you so far. We need yeah. feedback about how we show up in the world. We need to see when we say what we're saying, or when we're sharing our story, we need to see a reaction mm-hmm. in order to learn from it. So I'm developing this like program that's this bigger container. And for right now, for here, for the next year, it feels like a really cool place to be. And it feels like a time where I said, this doesn't have to make the most, you know, cause I'm not someone that sells the stuff that I do with like, you're going to make more money. As soon as you start telling your story, you're going to be rich and rolling in cash lady. <laughs> um, I'm just not, I don't feel that way, but I feel like if more people are breaking the fourth wall, which is the theater term mm-hmm. uh, are, are not worried about saying true things, Mm-hmm. But in finding and sharing the truth with people, I feel like at least the part of the world I'm in is going to be a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just kind of like putting the pedal to the metal and saying, how do I live in that? It's also, I'm designing it in a way that will let me not travel yeah. or design travel as I want. I want to go hang out for two weeks in Hawaii with, with my husband and a baby. And I want to do a week retreat someday again, when we can do those kind of things, then I can do that. And so I just, I feel like I'm a little bit more, you're not in charge when you're doing corporate events. You're not, Mm. you're on someone else's agenda. You're someone else's kickoff call. I mean, the month of October, the month of March are so busy for speakers because it's like end of the year, let's start the year. And so, uh, and it just was miserable. And so for me, it was keen. I feel like I'm in a place now where I feel like I've got the pen back. Yeah. Ooh, I love I that. Like got, got the, the pen, pen back. back. <laughs> mm, that's powerful. And I, you are just such a, A, you're an amazing human. B, the way that you express and present yourself allows us to really like experience that amazingness of you. And so I feel like people who are listening to this, whether you are called forth to your work, to Mike's work, because you want to actually tell a story or just because you want to live a better life. Like, I feel like both of those work here. And like the work is really important about expression and really being able, like, it's just being in fun with you. It feels like. I love that. For So for people who are listening, whether you're like, I do want to be a speaker. I do want to tell my story. I do like desire to be on stages. Or if you're just like, damn, I like this vibe. Like, how do I be that vibrant? Cause that's really like what you're bringing to the stage or just the room that you're in. Like, do you have kind of any advice for kind of like starting out or like, if you're just kind of like, what is for people who are leaning in, what do you do? <laughs> how, can I, <laughs> yeah. how can people be more like Mike? Well, one, thank you for that lovely comment. I mean, it's, you're, as you know, and I'm saying it for the world to hear, I just think so highly of you. And so for you to say those kind things about me is really uh, touching. So thank you. And I think the thing I would say is the thing I, the thing that I try to do all of the time, even when I was doing a year, uh, two, three years, really the last three years of like heavy, heavy, heavy work and traveling and stuff. I always was showing up, as myself. Mm. And I think it's one of the things like whether I'm working with someone for a specific event, they come to me and they're, they're writing a specific talk or they need help for a specific webinar or presentation. Um, I was working with someone the other day of like uh, finding, I'm putting this in quotes, finding her voice. 
And, uh, and I said, I'm not the person if you need to find your voice, but I'm the person if you say, someone has been telling me that my voice doesn't matter and I have an opinion and I am here to say it. If yeah. you're that person, then I'm your guy. Because yeah. let's strip away the bondage. Let's get rid of all of the straps that have been put upon you about how you are and how you show up. I think it's actually one of the reasons that I was successful as a corporate speaker is that there was such a contrast Mm -hmm. between the way I showed up and the way other people did. And it made the audience and the people booking me feel like, ah, maybe there's more possible for us because we all feel like we're boring people to death with our presentations. So maybe there's another way because look, this guy got here and my Mm -hmm. company, my law firm, my bank, that was always the funny one, the bank, my financial firm hired him. So if he could be like this, maybe I could be a little bit more like me Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'm not in the, you know, there's, and, and I totally appreciate it and love it. I'm not that person who says like, um, own your weird and be weird and strange for the period of being weird and strange. Like when I did improv, I wasn't a goofum improver. A goofum is the kind of improver is like, let's find the slapsticky joke here. Right. I was never that person. I was always really drawn to political satire. Mm-hmm. I was always drawn to, um, not even smart comedy, but like reality-based comedy where it's like, no, let's just look at what's real and make fun of it. We don't need to create characters who are wild and zany. Like the stuff, like the woman at the grocery store is enough. She's interesting enough. We don't need to add layers. Totally, totally. And I feel like for folks who are out there who are saying, how do I do more of that? It's, It's three things that I would say to get started with. Number one is when you're in front of people and you don't feel like yourself, who are you being? Mm. Look at that person. Give it a name. Give that character a name. So when I'm, when I'm in front of people and I am giving a presentation, what is that? Who am I becoming? We need to understand that a little bit because the goal here isn't to become more of yourself. I don't buy into that. I don't buy into find your voice. I don't buy into any of that. What I believe is we need to rip off the fourth wall. We need mm-hmm. to rip off the bondage and we need to reveal ourselves. We need to express ourselves. We don't need more. You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. There's no shortage in you. What's happened is you just have all of these layers and we need to rip them apart. So one is, who are you being when you're not yourself? Let's Mm -hmm. just take those pieces away. Number two, what is your opinion? When I start working with someone in my courses, one-on-one, on on stages, uh, in workshops, I always say, what's your opinion? We don't want another, we don't need another speaker, another leader, another course creator who's out here just telling us how to do things and how things are. What we need is someone with an opinion that changes our mind. If you look at Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, Mel Robbins, go back and watch their very first TED Talks. They were not perfect. In fact, Simon Sinek looks like he's in the back of a prison somewhere. It's poorly lit. It's poorly shot. It's not what you would think would create a guy who I think makes like $100,000 for a keynote now. Right. Why did it work? Because he had an opinion. Because he stripped the bondage. He showed up as him. And he said, this is what I see in the world. This is how I feel. And if that's for you, get the heck on the bus because I've got a book coming out. You could buy it too. I mean, that's the way it works. Those are the thought leaders we need. We don't need thought leaders who are packaging things up for us and telling us, here's how nice it is. So one, get rid of all the stuff that's not you. Two, have an opinion. And three, find the people who want to learn more about that opinion. That's really it. Then it feels very comfortable and safe to go out in the world. I mean, I was talking about the corporate work. Mm -hmm. So when I go in and I work with a, a financial firm that's like buttoned up, 
What do I know? <laughs> I know they saw my website. I know they saw the colors on the website. I know they saw my about page and my bio that Aaron helped me write by the way. So it actually sounds and feels like me. The whole about page, if you go to mikeganino.com about slash about, that's Aaron's work with me where we got really clear and you'll notice at the top, it has an opinion. Mm. It does not say like, hello, all corporate leaders should tell stories. It says, you have a story to tell. What the heck is wrong with you? Let's get it out there. Let's change the world. It yeah. takes an opinion. And so I know when I get on a corporate stage, they're not going to be shocked when I show up because right. I put it out there that way. Because you've already revealed yourself. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And I know these are all just about, not just about, but these are about storytelling and being on stage and all of that stuff. And there's so much just like life lesson in this. It's so important, like taking these and apply it to whatever you're doing, like revealing yourself, having an opinion, and then finding the people who want to learn more. Like that's being of service is you being yourself and being out there and sharing and shining. And, and I think uh, it's, it's what it takes to build a, you know, it, it, it's what it takes, I think, today, right now, and ongoing as we think about what the world looks like post-COVID, yeah. what the world looks like post-whatever happens maybe it's happened already by the time this is out there, whatever happens in the 2020 election, what we are going to be seeking in a post-fact world, we're in a post-fact world. We're not going to be seeking thought leaders to tell us the seven hacks and the six tips and the how to do this and that. We are going to be seeking the truth tellers who help us make sense of our experiences. And you cannot do that unless you reveal yourself, have an opinion and find your people. Mic drop moment right there. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's it. That's it. In a post-fact world, like we are looking for truth tellers and people who have opinions. That's what leadership is going to look like. Not regurgitating what we learned in the training that we did two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's so good. Mike, this has been incredible. Thank you. This was like a, almost like watching a performance. Like you are such an incredible, engaging speaker and human friend, person, professional, like, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for sharing all of this knowledge and wisdom with us. And really, like, truly from my heart, thank you for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for creating a space for for us to come and to be who we are. I appreciate you. Hey, it's Erin. And I want you to know that you matter. Everything you're doing and everything you've done, it all matters. It all counts because you are important to the people around you, your family and friends, your audience, your clients, and quite honestly, to the world. Whether you're changing lives on the front line or changing lives while you're changing diapers, your presence matters. Every life you touch counts. And from just one interaction, there can be infinite, meaningful effects. And for that reason, I want to thank you for showing up and doing the work to be with yourself and share your light and your gifts and your love with those around you. If you want support with any of this human being stuff, you're always welcome to join me inside of my coaching membership, Human Being Club at humanbeingclub.com or follow along with me on Instagram for more behind the scenes, silly stuff at Erin Lindstrom. Once again, thank you for being here and thank you for you.